The Budget and Accounting Act is 100 years old, and so is the Government Accountability Office, formerly called the General Accounting Office. The agency, part of Congress, has come a long way from its origins in bean counting. We get a brief overview from the GAO's Chief Operating Officer, Kate Sigurud. Kate, good to have you back. Glad to be here, Tom. Thanks. And, of course, GAO is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year, and we've talked to Comptroller General Gene Dodaro on that topic. But from your knowledge, the General Accounting Office days really did have that financial and budgetary orientation, didn't it? It did. So, yeah, when the Budget and Accounting Act created GAO in 1921, it did a couple of things. It created, you know, today's appropriations and budgeting process by having the president prepare a budget and establishing the Bureau of the Budget, which is today known as the Office of Management and Budget. But for GAO, we were created as an independent agency to look at the overall spending by the executive branch and audit the functions and audit certain claims that came to the executive branch. So we were there to help Congress understand how dollars appropriated by the Congress were being spent by the executive branch. And I think it's fair to say that whatever else has happened in 100 years, Congress has kept its political tentacles off GAO, which remains one of the, I think, beacons of nonpartisan oversight. Yes, uh, that's certainly true, Tom. So we started as sort of a voucher checking and claims organization, and Congress was happy to have us perform that service. But over time, Congress came to expect more of us in terms of the performance economy and efficiency of the federal government, but we have maintained a nonpartisan and objective approach to all of our work uh, from 1921 through 2021 and have become a very relied upon source of information in terms of government performance. And people think of GAO as the program oversight now because there are so many reports that come out on the management of programs, the efficacy, the outcomes of whether they're correct. But the financial accounting and the vouchers, if you will, to use the older term, is still a really big part of GAO, isn't it? Right. Yeah, we started as a voucher checking organization. And even though that overall process went back to the executive branch in the 1950s, Financial auditing has remained a really important part of what we do. So in addition to the work that we do reporting on efficiency, compliance, best practices in terms of performance of government programs, we are also the auditor of the federal government's annual annual financial statements and, in fact, issue an overall report on that every single year. How closely do you think that the practices of the GAO mirror those of public accounting firms that look at corporations and try to audit and verify their statements, because that's a big function, is the the financial statements and the verification of them. Is it similar, or does it vary to the degree that government finance varies from private sector finance? Well, certainly we talk a lot to each other between the private sector and the public sector accountants and how we do our work. But GAO does have responsibility for setting what's called the government auditing standards, also known as the Yellow Book, And we began that in 1972. So we have a set of auditing standards focused on both financial statement audits that we're talking about, as well as performance audits, those that are focused on an economy and efficiency. And we have been establishing those standards now since 1972 and updating those every few years. So there's a lot of conversation back and forth between the private sector and government accountants, but there are basic differences in how that work is done, and they are laid out in those accounting standards. 
I'd say the average person probably doesn't understand the intricacies of accounting or the fact that in many ways it's as much art as science and subject to interpretation because it's complicated. And I look at it almost like playing a musical score as opposed to just simply operating an adding machine. Is that a fair way to put it? I would say so. Uh, when we think about what a, what a performance audit is, and, and that is the majority of the work that GAO does these days, we really evolved into doing that kind of work in the late 60s when the Great Society programs were established and Congress was interested in how they were working. So that led us to have to develop a set of practices with a wide variety of skills and experience in terms of the people that we hired to do the work. So in addition to accountants, which were common in GAO at that time, in the 70s we began hiring uh, experts in the fields of science, actuarial science, computer science, healthcare, public policy, etc., so that we could look at the broad array of federal programs that exist. We could look at what they were expected by law to accomplish, what they were expected by regulation to accomplish, and then determine if they were in fact doing that and then making recommendations. And I'm sure, as you know, Tom, that the majority of our reports today have recommendations to the executive branch to improve their overall functioning of those programs. We're speaking with Kate Sigurud. She is the chief operating officer of the Government Accountability Office, celebrating its 100th year this year. And how do the people at GAO maintain the optimism and the good cheer they generally seem to have, even when looking at programs that have gone pretty far astray? Oh, well, it's nice to hear that you think of our reports that way, uh, being optimistic and having good cheer. Uh, But we are always optimistic that government programs can be improved. And I would be remiss if I didn't say that GAO had just been named the best place to work of mid-sized agencies by the Partnership for Public Service last week for the year 2020 when that survey was last done. So, you know, I think that as we look at what federal agencies are meant to accomplish and try to accomplish, it's good to have an optimistic outlook that we can get there and that overall everything can be improved and made to serve the American people and the taxpayers in even a better way than they do currently. I imagine there's a sense of camaraderie in the workforce there, which probably helps make it a best place to work in government. It would be too much to say us versus them attitude, but all the employees do have that shared activity of looking at things and trying to, frankly, find the fault with them. And that must breed a certain, I don't know, well, camaraderie is the word I would pick. (laughs) That's a nice way to put it, Tom. I don't know if it's so much finding the fault, but looking for improvements. Um, The fact is we have a multidisciplinary workforce, and all of the work that we do, every single report we issue in GAO, is a team effort where we go to folks in GAO or sometimes external experts when we need them to determine what is the best way to evaluate a program and what criteria would be appropriate for judging it. And so we do need a very multidisciplinary workforce, including, as I mentioned, attorneys, economists, social science research, actuaries, et cetera, all focused together on evaluating federal programs and determining how they could be improved. And given that diversity of types of things that you look at from, again, program efficacy to financial management to whether the outcomes are correct and science, technology agencies, financial agencies, benefits agencies, what's the common quality, do you think, that makes the best type of GAO employee, regardless of of the particular mission they're looking at? Oh, that's an interesting question, Tom. So I think people that are curious and that like to learn – 
and that are focused on solving problems, often can be very effective in their work at GAO and enjoy the kind of work that we do. So we are looking for improvements and we're trying to understand sort of a critical thinking approach to how best for the government to serve the American people and the taxpayer and deliver on the many expectations that people have of the federal government. You did mention science and technology, and I want to mention that GAO established our new team, the Science Technology Assessment and Analytics Team, in 2019. That's our newest um, overall mission team in GAO. And it does build on efforts over the last two decades to have a technology assessment capacity and a foresight function to identify major trends that should inform our work for Congress. But we are seeing a lot of interest from Congress as they focus on technology challenges and science challenges to use GAO as an expert source to understand uh, what the policy options and challenges are with regard to science and technology. So that's a new effort for us, and we're proud of what we've been able to accomplish in the last two years in that regard. And finally, do you have an internal list of agencies that you'd really like to deal with? And are there those that you say to yourselves, oh, gosh, we got to look at these jerks again? <laughs> well, Tom, I'm not going to touch that one. But I will say uh, that every two years uh, when there is a new Congress established, including this year in, in January of 2021, we issue a high-risk report. And this goes through and lists uh, programs and agencies that we are view as having high risk of fraud, waste, abuse, or mismanagement within their programs, or that are in need of fundamental transformation. And so I think taking a look at that program that we have and our biannual reports on that will give everyone a good sense of where we think the greatest needs are for improvement in terms of the functioning of federal programs. And just a final question on Congress, as much as they bash each other, my understanding is that they tend to be fairly respectful of the GAO and that that relationship is a good one on a nonpartisan basis. I would say that that's largely true, Tom. GAO remains respected as a nonpartisan and objective uh, source of information for the Congress. We work very hard to maintain that reputation and to be supportive to the Congress in ways that are still, as I mentioned, nonpartisan and objective and so it's a great relationship. We are having, on July 14th, what we're calling a capstone event, and this will be a series of recorded and live videos that will feature members of Congress, along with our current Controller General and several of his predecessors, and anyone in the public who would like to see that on YouTube can see it on July 14th or later. We're really pleased to have members of Congress support us in that effort. And finally, I would like to say that the Senate passed a resolution last week recognizing our 100th anniversary and GAO's many accomplishments over that century. I guess the members of Congress in 1921 that did pass that Budget and Accounting Act could never have imagined the idea of YouTube, though, could they? I would imagine not. No, we would have had to go and talk to them in person. All right, in those covered wagons and peanuts. Kate Sigarud is Chief Operating Officer of the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much. Thanks for the opportunity, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, 
and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's chief of legislative affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from sea to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, What I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. 
you don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I, I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From Sea to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, 
always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast1 to learn more and start your free trial.